Welcome back, and thanks for joining me again. We have recently begun to study the world of higher dimensions, beyond three dimensions. We have seen already the usefulness of this in nature with relation to string theory and Calabi-Yau manifolds. Well, this lecture focuses on higher dimensional versions of polyhedra that we have studied. Remember the five platonic solids? Well, these solids are the bedrock on which symmetries and patterns are studied in the three-dimensional world. Moreover, we have seen that polyhedra in general are used to build all the possible three-manifolds by gluing their faces. Well, as we leave three dimensions, we ask, are there higher dimensional analogs to the platonic solids? Is there something like the platonic solids in four dimensions? Well, this adventure will, in a new way, reveal the mysteries and complexities of higher dimensions. Today, we will learn how to explore these objects, and most importantly, how to visualize them using the power of Schlegel diagrams, a tool which allows the ability to draw four-dimensional objects using three-dimensional tools. It's exciting. So let's get started and enter the world of polytopes. As a manifold describes a surface in higher dimensions, giving three manifolds, four manifolds and higher, a polytope describes a polyhedron in arbitrarily high dimensions. Now the special name for a two-dimensional polytope is a polygon. We call it a polygon because we need to use it many times. It's commonly occurring in nature and in mathematics. And it's made of vertices and edges. Now the special name given for a three-dimensional polytope is a polyhedron. Again, it has its own name as a polyhedron because it is also useful. It is made up of vertices, edges, and faces. A polytope can be defined for arbitrary dimensions. Sometimes we will call a 4D polytope simply a polytope for short, if the dimensional context of 4 is obvious. So let's focus now on just the four-dimensional versions of polytopes. What does it mean to be a polytope? Well, for 3D, we needed vertices, edges, and faces. So in four dimensions, we see that a four-dimensional polytope is made up of vertices, edges, faces, and chambers, an extra third-dimensional structure needed to construct it. Now, as a polyhedron is made up of polygonal faces bounding a three-dimensional volume, let's take a look. Here's a polyhedron. It's made up of polygons that are bounding, that capture a three-dimensional volume inside. It's made up of a, a two-dimensional shell on the outside catching that 3D inside. A polytope, a four-dimensional polytope, is made up of polyhedral faces. Its faces are these guys. These are glued together to bound a four-dimensional volume. Notice how the gluing of all polyhedra work. Taking any polyhedra in consideration, you notice that all the edges of the polygons are glued together perfectly. There are no unused edges. Each edge of the polygon glues perfectly to one another to create the polyhedron. Similarly, a polytope is made up of a collection of polyhedra whose faces are glued together perfectly with no unused faces. 
So if I start gluing polyhedra together along their faces like this and completely glue every face possible so there's no unused faces, we can start building polytopes in four dimensions. So we ask two questions. First, how was it possible to imagine such a world, to draw it, to visualize it? And second, who cares? Why should we study polytopes at all? Well, I want to answer the second question first. Polytopes provide a stepping stone to understanding four manifolds. You know, just like polyhedra provided us with a stepping stone to move from two-dimensional surfaces to three-dimensional manifolds, polytopes do the same thing for the transition from three-dimensional manifolds to four-dimensional manifolds. Now, they are made of simple objects which we know and understand. In general, a four-manifold could be complicated structure, but a polytope has these pieces of the puzzle. They provide a combinatorial setting, allowing us to use counting methods to help classify them. We can talk about their vertices, edges, faces, and chambers, and this helps us in order to think about four-dimensional objects better. But we now turn to the harder task of trying to visualize and draw four-dimensional polytopes using the tools of three-dimensional humans, using the tools that we have. Well, we begin with understanding three-dimensional polyhedra from a two-dimensional world. This is exactly the same model we did last time to understand what a creature in four dimensions feels like, what the powers they have is. So similarly, instead of talking about a four-dimensional polytope, let's pull back and talk about three-dimensional polyhedra from a two-dimensional perspective. We want to describe how a two-dimensional being can understand a three-dimensional object. So let's start with a simple object like a cube. Here's a cube. It's clearly a three-dimensional object. But how can I describe this cube to somebody who lives on the plane for a two-dimensional being? I cannot just say it's depth, width, and height. They have no concept of height. Now, they know all the pieces of the puzzle. They know all the squares, but it's formed together to give me a three-dimensional structure. Well, there are three classic ways of looking at uh, descriptions of three-dimensional objects to two-dimensional beings. The first one is projections. We look at its shadow. Here's my cube. I can look at the shadow that the cube casts on the floor. Now, one way you see this is a square. If you look straight down at the cube, it casts a shadow of a square. But if you look at the cube from a different perspective, just from a tilt, you see it casts a shadow of, of a rectangle. From another perspective, it casts a shadow of a hexagon. And even from another perspective, we see the shadow of a, of, of a hexagon with two of the sides being very small. Notice that one shadow cannot capture all of the 3D-ness of the cube. So in order to explain to a two-dimensional person what a cube is, we can't just give them one shadow. That doesn't do it justice. We need to give them all the shadows that we can get so they can, they can get a feel for what the three-dimensional cube really is like. Well, the second thing we can do is instead of looking at shadows, we can make movies or slices. This is what we did with two-dimensional knots. In order for us to get an understanding how those two-dimensional knots, those, those surfaces thrown into four dimensions can work. But now we're just looking at it in terms of a cubical structure. If you take a cube, I can slice it in one way, and I can get a movie that I'm making, these collection of slices arranged in a certain order. So now notice each of the slices is two-dimensional. 
every particular snapshot of the movie can be understood by a two-dimensional being. It's just when you run the movie, will they have a hard time reconstructing the 3D idea? But at least they have a snapshot of what the slices look like. But notice also, just like before, there are different ways we can capture the movie of a cube. We don't have to slice it exactly the same way. If you slice it in a different way, we can get instead of squares, I get triangles and hexagons and triangles going all the way back to a point again. For instance, we notice one special thing when I'm comparing these two objects, that the smoothie slices that we get are actually quite different than the projections that we got earlier. For instance, we see triangles in some of the movie frames of a cube, but triangles never appear as shadows of the cube. So although both of them in some sense are capturing parts or slices in a two-dimensional way, the projections are actually capturing different data than the slices are. Well, the third way we can do this is we can actually open up the cube. Imagine I have a cube in front of me. I take the top part of the cube off. I take one of the faces off. I put my hands on the side framework of the cube, around the boundary that I've created since I've just removed the cap off, and I stretch it open. Topologically, I stretch it open until I lay it flat. Now, notice here that we do not get a set of images like shadows. We don't get several images or a strip of images like a movie, but we just get one image. It is this third method of opening up that is extremely valuable to us. Now, this method of opening up is something we've actually done before. It appeared when we wanted to compute the Euler's formula for a polyhedron, we actually removed a cap of the polyhedron, put our hands in there, and opened it up. And this method is called the Schlegel diagram of the cube. This object you see at the end of opening up the cube this way is this structure, the Schlegel diagram. And it's named after the mathematician Victor Schlegel from the 1880s. Now, the good news is that it preserves all combinatorial and topological properties. In other words, the number of vertices and edges and faces that you had in the original cube, you still have. And even the face that was removed, remember how we had to remove the face to open it up? Even that is still remembered by the boundary. The face that we remembered is exactly captured as the boundary of this flattened, opened up structure. And if you count the number of vertices, edges, and faces inside the original cube, we see them appearing here in this Schlegel diagram. Now, the bad news is that unlike shadows or movies, it completely destroys geometry. In shadows and movies, you got exactly those square slices or those triangular slices where the angles of the cube were preserved. But now the angles are completely gone since we're topologically stretching it. But if we're trying to explain a 3D object to a 2D person, something must be lost in translation. And it is this method, the Schlegel diagram's approach, that we use to draw four-dimensional polytopes. Now consider one more example. Let's draw a Schlegel diagram for the triangular prism. Let's take a look. Here's my triangular prism. I'm going to choose to remove a face, this square. If I remove it, I put my hands around it, open it up and lay it flat. I have a square as the boundary, and I have these edges inside it. Remember, the face that we remove becomes the boundary of our diagram. Indeed, I can remove this other triangle from our triangular prism, put my hands in and open it up this way. And notice here, the face that I remove, the triangle becomes the boundary of my diagram. After we have the boundary constructed, we then draw the guts of the polyhedron inside, coming from the diagram of the original polyhedron itself.
And notice there are different ways of opening it. Both of these different ways give me two different Schlegel diagrams, but they give me the same topological information. The top one has six vertices. The bottom one has six vertices. The top one has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine edges. And the bottom one has nine edges. Exactly the same thing. We have two triangles on the top with three squares, one square, two square, and the third big boundary square. And here we have two triangles with three square. Great. Two different ways of looking at the same thing. Now let's begin our adventures of drawing polytopes. In order to understand four-dimensional polytopes, we begin by focusing on generalizations of two classical important polyhedra, the tetrahedron and the cube. Let's start with these two ideas. The simplest four-dimensional polytope is a higher-dimensional version of the tetrahedron, and it's called the four-simplex. In general, a simplex refers to the generalization of the triangle. A zero-simplex is a point, a one-simplex is a line, a two-simplex is a triangle, a three-simplex is a tetrahedron, it's a three-dimensional version, and a four-simplex is the four-dimensional version of this. But, but what is a simplex? Well, to get an n-simplex in general, there is a pattern we do to build this object. We take the previous smaller n-1 simplex, and we take its convex hull with another point in a new dimension. To build my one-dimensional simplex, my interval, I take my point, I take another point in a different dimension than this original point, and I take the convex hull and I get the interval. Now I have the interval. How do I build the next one? I take a point somewhere outside of it in a different dimension and take the convex hull. Now how do I get the next one, the three-simplex? I take this triangle. I take a point in a different dimension, not on the plane, but in a different dimension. I take its convex hull and I get this. So what does the convex hull of five points in four dimensions look like? It is not taking the three-simplex and looking at an extra point in 3D and taking the convex hull. I need a fourth dimension to do it. So in order to build the four-simplex, we need to consider the pattern of the previous simplices. Notice the pattern of the simplices are the edge has two points, or zero-simplices as its boundary. The triangle has three edges, or one simplicity, as its boundary. The tetrahedron has four triangles as its boundary. Thus, my four simplex must have five tetrahedral chambers as its boundary, and each of the tetrahedral chambers must touch every other tetrahedral chambers. Look at the three simplex. Notice the tetrahedron. Every triangle touches every other triangle. How do we do this? Well, consider the Schlegel diagram patterns. Let's take a look. If I take my triangle, I can remove one of the edges, a boundary, open it up, and my Schlegel diagram is two intervals put together. I can take a tetrahedron, remove one of its boundary, a triangle, open it up, and make it a triangle with this pattern on the inside. Notice I have an interval with a point in the middle. I have a triangle with a point in the middle with connections. So the four simplex, if we follow this pattern, is a tetrahedron with a point in the middle connected up to all the vertices. Now, does this actually satisfy our two requirements? Do I actually have five tetrahedra with each chamber touching all the other chambers? If I actually look at the structure in a different way, I can actually put a bomb in the center of it and kind of blast it open. And you actually see that there are four tetrahedra gluing each other perfectly. And the fifth tetrahedron is the outside one that I had removed in the first place in order to draw it. 
So you see the four here, and the fifth is the entire boundary itself. So here is an example of a four-dimensional polytope that we have drawn in three dimensions. Remember, we had to remove that face, that outside face, in order for me to get my hands in and push it down. So I've taken my four-dimensional object, removed one of the tetrahedral pieces, put my hands in four dimensions, and pushed it into three dimensions to get a picture like this. So let's move on to the four-dimensional cube. Well, what is a cube? Well, to get the n-dimensional cube, there's a pattern. We take the n-minus-one-dimensional cube, and we need to push it perpendicularly. I have a point. Then I take my point as my zero-dimensional cube, and I push it to get a line segment. I take my line segment, I push it perpendicularly to get my square. I take my square, I push it perpendicularly to get my cube. And I need to push this cube perpendicularly into the fourth dimension to get my four cube. And similar to the four simplex, we have a pattern for the four cube. The vertices of my interval has two points on the boundary. My square has four intervals on the boundary. My cube has six squares on the boundary. And thus, my four-dimensional cube must have eight cubes on its boundary. And again, we can consider the Schlegel diagram patterns. If I take my cube, remove one of the faces, and lay it flat, the two dimensions become one dimension flat. Notice it's three intervals with an interval in the middle. If I take my cube, put my fingers in and lay it flat, look at the Schlegel diagram, it's a cube with, excuse me, it's a square with a square inside with things connected up, but that's square in the middle. Similarly, the four-dimensional cube is going to be a four, it's a cube on the outside with a cube on the inside with connections from the inside to the outside, just like the previous pattern. Now, does this satisfy our two requirements of the eight cubes as chambers touching the way we want it to? Let's take a look. It turns out if I, again, put a time bomb in the center and blow it open, I actually can see six cubes on the outside boundary surrounding my central seventh cube. And the eighth cube is the outer shell itself that I had to remove in order to draw this in 3D. So this is the four-dimensional cube. Well, now that we have tasted two examples of four polytopes, let's look at the regular four polytopes. These are the natural generalizations of the platonic solids to 4D. Well, what makes the platonic solids special? What, what makes them stand apart from all the other polyhedra we can draw? Well, regularity. All faces are regular polygons, and the way they're gluing must be identical in terms of all the vertices. So, for example, to get all the regular three polytopes, the five platonic solids, we have the tetrahedron right here, three triangles glue at one vertex, the octahedron, four triangles glue at a vertex, and it looks the same in any vertex I pick, icosahedron, five triangles glue at a vertex, the cube, where we have three squares gluing at a vertex, and the dodecahedron, where we have three pentagons gluing at a vertex, no matter which vertex I look at, it should look the same. This is the concept of regularity. Now, in four dimensions, one can prove that there are exactly six regular polytopes, not five platonic solids, but six in four dimensions. A Swiss mathematician, Ludwig Schlafly, examined and characterized the regular polytopes in higher dimensions, the end of the 19th century. Now, let's take a look at them and view their Schlegel diagrams. Well, the simplex turns out to be, in terms of the four-dimensional version, as follows. 
we have five tetrahedral chambers, ten triangular faces, ten edges, five vertices, exactly the way we've drawn earlier. Then we have the cube, as we've drawn before. Eight cubical chambers, 24 square faces, 32 edges, 16 vertices. Then we have something called the cross polytope. This is equivalent to the octahedron. 16 tetrahedral chambers, 32 triangular faces, 24 edges and 8 vertices. Then we have something called the 24 cell. It has 24 octahedral chambers, 96 triangular faces, 96 edges and 24 vertices. Then we have the 120 cell. 120 dodecahedral chambers, 720 pentagons, 1,200 edges, 600 vertices. And here, before I move on, I just want to show you this example of the dodecahedron, the 120 cell made by Bathsheba Grossman. Again, we saw a previous work of her model in terms of the Calabiao structures, but here we see the 120 cell that I can actually hold in my hand made up of metal. It's done by a beautiful three-dimensional printing, and and I find this absolutely stunning. It's one of my favorite models ever designed. Well, the last one, the sixth one, is the 600 cell that you see here. It has 600 tetrahedral chambers, 1,200 triangular faces, 720 edges, and 120 vertices. Now, let's take a look at all of the numbers that I told you in this, in this chart. Look what happens. We see the simplex has a pattern, 5, 10, 10, 5, in terms of chambers, faces, edges, and vertices. The cube has a pattern, the cross polytope, the 24 cell, 120 cell, and 600 cell. Notice that the cube and the cross polytope have the numbers exactly reversed. And the 24 cell is symmetric to itself, the simplex is symmetric to itself, and the 120 and the 600 cell are symmetric to themselves. This is the concept of duality. Now, let's take a look at the duality we saw earlier. We've seen this exact same structure before in terms of cubes and octahedra in the three-dimensional case. If you notice my cube, notice I can place an octahedron in there. Every time I see a face, I give it a vertex, and every time I see a vertex, I give it a face. The cube and the octahedra are dual to one another. Thus, a polytope and its dual hold from this chart that you see the same information, but it's just presented differently. In fact, we have used this idea of duality for Hagard's splitting of three manifolds. We took a tetrahedralization of the three manifold, looked at the vertices and edges to get a framework structure, and then we looked at the dual to get the, the other Hagard splitting manifold inside it, the two surfaces meeting right along this boundary. Now we have seen numerous types of polyhedra other than just the platonic solids. What about other polytopes than just the regular ones? Well, we need a way of creating more polytopes. But one beautiful method is a tool we used earlier from manifolds, which is multiplication. When we were building the torus, instead of multiplying two circles, remember how we multiplied two intervals first to get the square, and then we identified the square to get the torus? Well, similarly, a cube comes from the product of three intervals multiplied together. But what happens if I take an interval and multiply it by a triangle? It means that every point in my triangle, I give it an interval, and I get a triangular prism. So we can see we can build polyhedra for multiplication. But remember how dimensions work. The sum of the dimensions of each polytope is the dimension of the resulting polytope. We can use this idea to build four polytopes. We simply need to multiply objects whose total dimension adds to four. 
So the product of four intervals, each interval is one-dimensional. Interval times interval times interval times interval gives us the four-dimensional cube. Because the three of them gives us the three-dimensional cube, and the next one gives us the four-dimensional cube, which we've already seen. So let's take a look at some Schlegel diagrams. Here are examples of a tetrahedron times an interval, a triangle times a triangle, and a triangle times a square. All of these are four-dimensional objects, and I'm looking at the Schlegel diagrams in 3D. Do you see each one is made up of a tetrahedron 3 and an interval 1 gives me a 4 total. Triangle and a triangle is 2 plus 2, a 4 dimension. Triangle and a square is 2 plus 2, which is 4 dimensions. Now we are now going to learn, rather than me just telling you what the Schlegel diagram is, we are now going to learn to draw such 4 dimensional diagrams coming from multiplication. Now let's take a closer look at the very last one, the triangle times the square. I'm going to work my way through this example to see how we can actually draw this ourselves. Now, in order to do this, we first consider a three-dimensional polyhedron that comes from multiplication, and then see how that works to push us into the 4D world. Let's consider the triangular prism that we talked about. The boundary of the triangular prism, its faces, is the feature we need to draw. Why? Because the boundary pieces are made of products of the boundary of the pieces. So if I have my triangular prism, note it's made up of a triangle times an interval. And a triangle has three boundary pieces, the x, y, z, and the interval has two boundary pieces, the a and the b. So my superstructure, my triangular prism, must be made of the boundary of the triangle and the boundary of the interval put together. So here are my boundary pieces. I can take my x, my y, my z, and I can multiply it by my entire second boundary, the a, b interval. And if I take each of my x, y, and z and multiply it by that, I get interval times an interval, which is a square. I get three squares. But I can also take my boundary pieces for my interval, which is an A and a B, and I can multiply that by the entire triangle. So I take this point and this point multiplied by a triangle. A point times a triangle is a triangle, so I get two triangles. Which means my triangular prism must be made up of three squares and two triangles exactly the way I have it. Now that we have an idea how the multiplication of the boundary pieces gives us a hint, let's look at the triangle times the square. Here, my triangle times my square, the triangle has three boundary pieces, x, y, z. My square has four boundary pieces, a, b, c, d. So first I take my three boundary pieces, my three intervals, x, y, z, and each one gets multiplied by an entire square of possibilities. So I get interval times a square, which is a cube. So I get three cubes for my four-dimensional object. But from the other perspective, I have four intervals, A, B, C, D, and each one of these intervals gets multiplied by a triangle of possibilities. An interval times a triangle is a triangular prism, and I have four of these, so I must have four triangular prisms. So my triangle times square four-dimensional polytope must be made up of three cubes and four triangular prisms. Now, how do we know these pieces are glued the right way? Well, the way the boundary of the triangles and the squares glue determines the gluing of the chambers. And now look at this Schlegel diagram. We see it is indeed made up of four triangular prisms all around the structure, one, two, three, four, and it has three cubes, one here, one right under it, and the entire outside superstructure is the cube. Well, so far we've been looking at objects having geometric straight flat sides. What about a topological perspective where such things don't matter? 
But we realized quickly that four-dimensional polytopes come from really three-dimensional spheres. Exactly like three-dimensional polyhedra comes from two-dimensional spheres. So how can we think about what is going on in the four-dimensional perspective? Note what is important. Not that the filling of the ball in the inside, but the boundary itself. This is where all the polyhedral and polytopal activity is taking place. So for us to understand four-dimensional polytopes, the three-dimensional spherical shell is what's exciting. Just like for us to understand three-dimensional polyhedra, the two-dimensional shell is what's exciting. Now, as we looked at Jeff Weeks' curved spaces program to fly through three manifolds, there is a similar beautiful software that flies through four polytopes. The software called Gen3D was written in 2006 by Fritz Obermeier, who was then a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University. What would things look like if we were on the surface of a three-dimensional sphere flying in this four-dimensional polytope? Well, it's as if we were on the surface of the two-dimensional sphere for one of these objects flying through as we go through one chamber after another. Let's take a look at this beautiful program. So here we see an example of us flying through the 120 cell. In this 120 cell, we can see the structure everywhere in terms of gluing dodecahedra together. Now here we are flying through the 600 cell. It's a beautiful structure. Again, it's very different than the previous one because it's not tiled by dodecahedra anymore. Indeed, we can fly through other non-regular polytopes as well. For example, like this one. Now in all of these examples, the lines that we are seeing are geodesics, the shortest distances in the three-dimensional sphere. But due to the positive curvature of the three-dimensional sphere, which we learned from one of Thurston's geometric formulations that we have, these lines look warped, but they're really geodesic lines. Well, thus far we have explored in detail the life of four-dimensional polytopes. In particular, we've spent a good deal of time talking about the regular four-dimensional polytopes. But what about things in higher dimensions greater than four? It feels like our list must be getting longer and longer. In 3D, we had five of them. In 4D, we have six. What about five dimensions or 12 dimensions? Maybe it's not even possible to list all the regular polytopes in those many dimensions because it might be huge. However, it turns out just the opposite. We have the startling result given by Schlafly states that for all dimensions greater than four, there are only three regular polytopes. There's the n-dimensional simplex, the generalization of our tetrahedron, the n-dimensional cube, the generalization of our cube, and the n-dimensional cross polytope, the generalization of our octahedron. Those are the only three. In fact, it starts at five things for the platonic solids, it goes to six, and then immediately it drops to three all the way. So today, we have entered the world of four polytopes. We are looking at generalizations of the platonic solids in four dimensions and higher. But most importantly, we got our hands dirty by seeing how it is to actually build and draw and visualize and construct and indeed even fly through these worlds. Well, in our next lecture, we move to the world of particle motions and robot motion planning. Stay tuned.